Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Dini Van Pelt, who's a senior fellow at the Cardis Institute, as well as the Fraser Institute, a visiting fellow in Charlotte Mason Studies at the University of Cumbria in the United Kingdom, the president of Advanced Christian Schools Association, and one of the country's most thoughtful and compassionate voices for what she describes as educational pluralism. As Canadian students get ready to return to the classroom, I'm grateful to speak with her about the state of education in Canada and the prospects for a more child-centric model. Dini, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's great to be here. Let's start with some definitional questions. What do you and others mean by educational pluralism? And what is an independent school? Yeah. Education pluralism, stated really simply, is a system of education that allows for the funding and regulation for forms of schools that are not necessarily government-operated. So very simply, it's a focus on who operates the school. Is it always a government provider, or is there space for non-government providers? You know, we've got some friends in uh, in Geneva, the, the Organization for Rights and Freedoms in Education, and they've uh, just done a fantastic paper on what education pluralism is. It's a global phenomenon, and it's rooted in... Um, right to education, but also parental rights as with respect to education. So there's lots of definitions. It, um, it includes lots of aspects, but basically there's a diversity of forms of educational provision beyond the exclusive role of state-provided schooling. And that's where we get to this question of independent schools. So what's an independent school? Again, simply stated, it's a school that is operated by a non-government agent. So what is that typically? It's a not-for-profit, a good set of community folks get together and say, let's design a school around uh, various ideas, whether they're pedagogical, philosophical, or other convictions. And um, the school gets set up, registers as an independent school in its area of jurisdiction, and moves forward. Does it mean it's not regulated? Of course not. Does it mean it gets government funding? In most cases across the world, yes, it does. It's education pluralism is very simply, as we said, just that space for more providers than government agents. I think, Dini, our listeners will respond positively to the idea of pluralism. Pluralism is a value that um, all things being equal, people honor and respect in various aspects of modern life and, and in society. But setting aside the normative case for educational pluralism, what are the empirical arguments for an education system that extends beyond the standard 
government-run school model. What are the benefits of a pluralistic model for students and the system as a whole? You know, there's a vast and ever-increasing body of literature that gets to just that question. What's the evidence for government-operated schools, but also non-government-operated schools? You know, if we want to look at some of the most recent literature, there's some that has come out of Cardis, for example. Uh, First, I'll list four to get us started. First, there's this argument about good fit. When there's a good match between the family, between the student, and its own convictions, and the school that the child attends, you see better academic outcomes. Whole paper on that, many other papers. But when the fit is good, a child thrives, and the success academically is measurable in in quite a significant way. Secondly, it makes access to diversity, diverse forms of education more equitable. So there's a very large OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development Study, that looked at 65 countries that partially fund independent schools. And in those, in the countries that uh, partially or even more significantly over 50%, fund over 50% of the, the cost of, of the independent school, the despair, the socioeconomic disparity across families that choose independent schools or families that choose government schools almost disappears. So if we're looking for a fair, equitable equitable approach to education, that there is definite evidence through this this study that includes almost 500,000 students towards equitability. And then the third reason would be about social cohesion. And an excellent study about uh, that was done by Ashley Berner recently out of Johns Hopkins University. She asked the question about, but sh- do do independent schools form good citizens? And she t- found that taken taken together, the contribution of independent schools towards civic engagement actually outperforms in the vast majority of of studies that she looked at, independent schools outperform on civic engagement in its graduates. So what does that look like? It's things like students' political knowledge, their civic skills, they vote at higher levels, they volunteer at higher levels, their charitable giving is higher, their respect for civil liberties and for others' opinions are equally or superior, they call it the independent school advantage, to their colleagues in in government-provided schooling. So it contributes, in in a nutshell, to good citizens. Um, And then, you know, the last thing is we get good results. When there's more choice, there's strong incentives for a school to look over its shoulder and say, they're doing well over there. They're attracting some folks over there. Let's take a look. So the 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 incentive to improve quality in every school it has been well documented um, across the literature as well. Those are four, I would say, uh, bits of research that I, I don't think can be ignored when we're looking at the the benefits of independent schools. That's great, Dini. A very comprehensive answer that reflects the various benefits associated with independent schools. But let's discuss a common critique. In particular, one often hears the argument that a more robust independent school system will create inequities in education because it will disproportionately benefit wealthy students. Let me ask a two-part question. First, 
What's the current lay of the land in terms of independent schools in Canada? Tell us a bit, in other words, about the more than 1,500 independent schools in Ontario alone. And second, who are the 1 in 15 K-12 students in Ontario attending them? Sure. So we do definitely have a robust independent school um, presence in Canada. But before I say that, the choice for government schooling is still by far the the choice that is made. So over 90% of kids, students in Canada attend government um, operated schools, attend what, what we commonly call a public school. But when you take the public as a whole, about 8% of the public attends an independent school and about under just, just around 1% would be homeschooled. Certainly that's the, the data that we have pre-COVID, the comparable data. So we're really looking forward to, you know, what, what has changed in the last two years. But in general, the norm is to attend a government school. But let's talk about the, the independent school sector in Canada. As, as you said, there, there are close to um, 150,000 students in Ontario that attend independent schools across the country. There's close to 450,000 students that attend an independent school. But again, up against 5.3 million that attend government schools, it's a small share. So what does their life look like? What kind of schools are they attending? Um, the myth is that these are all wealthy students, just the rich they're being siphoned off from government schools and they're on their way to uh, to some kind of exclusive elitist sort of education. Well, nothing can be further from the truth, Sean. In five of the six largest provinces in Canada, there is government funding for independent schools, not at quite the same rate. It's not, you know, we spend about $14,000 per student in this country for, for the education of every, every student in a government school. But um, the, the funding would be up to 50% in a few jurisdictions, slightly higher. But the point is their education for students in independent schools is partially funded. And what does that mean? It goes back to the research I just talked about earlier. It means independent schools are accessible to a wide diversity of socioeconomic um, backgrounds. And when schools, independent schools are, are run that are based in communities, often the cost to operate is a, lo- a little lower than a government school. So some of these schools don't even have to require much top up for tuition. So even though they're, you know, th- th- it's not like they have to recover the other uh, 50%, let's say, in, in funding that they aren't given. So there's some, some um, efficiency benefits as well to that. But again, to get back to your question, um, the concerns about these this being an inequitable system, it doesn't bear out in when you take out just the elite schools. And let's be really clear, that's less than 5% of the independent schools in our country. If you take those schools out, or take those families out, and you look at the average income of a family who chooses an independent school and compare that to a family that chooses a government-operated school. There were two really good studies that came out of the Fraser Institute a few years ago. They looked at British Columbia and Alberta, and they found that, by and large, the income of the families were about the same, whether they chose an independent school or sent their kids to, to a government school. So it's not the choice of the wealthy. In a province like Ontario, where there isn't government funding, so just to be clear, the four provinces to the West and Quebec offer um, funding for independent schools. But in Ontario, where there is no funding for independent schools, um, it makes it much more difficult for a family uh, of lower socioeconomic means to make the choice. 
Are they closed off from making that choice? No, they're not. Schools operate within communities. They offer bursaries. There are philanthropists that get together, make sure that that these options are somewhat available to students. But is it fair in Ontario? No, it could be a lot more fair. And um, so that the schools could be much more accessible. Still, it gets to your point. Is it only the rich choosing or independent schools? Certainly not. Um, there are some other arguments. I think the loudest argument that you and I hear against the independent schools or even the presence of independent schools is that it siphons off money from public schools. That has been repeated so often that you and I have almost come to believe that point. But if we take a look at a, a problem, let's look at Saskatchewan, for example. They fund students at just under $6,000 per student in an independent school. In a, they have a sector called Qualified Independent Schools. You know, it, I, under $12 million in that province goes to fund Qualified Independent Schools, but 2,000 students attend those. That money is not taken from the public system. It's part of the budget that is dedicated to the education of the public in that province. There's still nearly $3 billion that goes to the government schools. In fact, so few students in Saskatchewan choose independent schools, less than 3%. This is a minor blip, this, this particular funding from the, from the, from, you know, taxpayer dollars. What it does do is it creates options for parents when there isn't a good fit, when a child isn't flourishing, or when there isn't a match, either in terms of philosophical, religious, or pedagogical convictions of the parents. It creates another place for those families to attend. Um, someone recently said it's a safety valve. And it again, that is respectful of the diversity of families and the diversity of needs that students have. One size doesn't fit all. One size fits a lot, but not all. So to say that an independent school takes money from a public school is the wrong way of looking at the question. 100% of the students in our provinces are students in the province. They're part of the public. Let's get on with figuring out how to best educate each and every one. And that's what an independent school does is it contributes to that. Well, that's a, a great answer. Thanks, Timmy. In a previous answer, you emphasized the extent to which independent schools remain a relatively minor share of the overall education landscape. But I was struck in a Hub article that you wrote last April that there's been significant growth in the number of independent schools in Ontario and elsewhere across the country. What's going on? What do you attribute this growth to? I've been studying the independent school sector for several decades, and indeed, the growth has been remarkable. So while the number of students in each jurisdiction, each province across the country has very slowly crept up, the number of independent schools is just in comparison, the growth in that, the rate is just exponential. So um, we do have numbers, for example, of the amount of independent schools in Ontario that the, the growth in the last two years. So that that's one of the stats we do have access to. And there's been 12% growth in the number of schools. So about uh, 
165 school independent schools have opened in the province of Ontario alone. So if we could extrapolate across the country, it probably means about 200 independent schools have, have been added in our country. If you go back um, to some research we did uh, using data from 2014-15, there were close to 2,000 independent schools across the country. So um, there are a lot of independent schools. There are the growth is, um, if I go back to 2005, there's been a 20% growth in the number of um, students that attend independent schools just in Ontario. I mean, any number I give you, any province, I can just show growth. So it's an intriguing concept, and it does show us that despite the barriers, as you and I talked about, there are some financial barriers um, to to choose these providers and this is where we get back to our question of education pluralism are increasingly opening the doors of new independent schools across this country so that's a really fascinating question are they opening it in response to demand are they opening it in response to the 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 fact that they're looking around and they're seeing that there are other ways to provide an excellent education that isn't currently happening in a government-operated, government-provided system. I am so intrigued by the innovation and the entrepreneurship that is behind that story of growth. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me follow up on that topic, Dini. If I'm putting myself in the position of a policymaker, how on one hand can policymakers enable and support that kind of innovation and dynamism occurring within the education system? And on the other hand, ensure that there's a high level of quality. Is there a trade-off here? I think it's a really important question. And it gets back to our foundational commitments as a country and within each province. In the, so in Canada, we spend about $75 billion per year on education. And I don't think people begrudge that expenditure. We want our future generation to be well-educated. We want our adults, if they want more education, to have access to better education. So the commitment to high-quality education and to spending on that, I think, is a non-negotiable. Knowing that 90% of our population chooses government school and maybe more would choose something else, but it's still the vast majority of citizens in this country will attend a government-operated school. Those schools need to be the highest quality possible and they need to be appropriately funded. So please don't understand in this conversation any uh, lack of commitment towards that goal. But we know that we can that there is this constant balance then, all right, if, we're, if there's going to be opportunity for a diversity of, of providers, we've got to get the balance right. 
between how those schools are regulated and how they're funded. So this is not an argument for no government regulation. It's not an argument that says if you receive any government funding, you therefore need to be very heavily regulated. And it's so it, it it's about finding the balance. And we did a study a few years ago. We went through every single province. We looked at all the different types of approaches to independent school policy approaches. So British Columbia has four different groups that are funded. Some are Several are funded. One is is not funded. In fact, every province has independent schools that are permitted to exist but aren't funded. So we went through. There are now about two dozen different approaches to the funding and regulation of independent schools in Canada. And that just said, and there's a new one starting this year in Saskatchewan, certified independent schools. They'll receive um, 75% of what the student would have risked, what would have followed the student had they gone to a government school. So what it just says is there is no one right regulatory approach to the funding and operating of, of, of independent schools. It says that each province needs to be in touch with what's going on on the ground and get the balance right. Get the set up a regulatory environment that allows freedom for innovators to come in, keep the barriers to entry low, which I would have to say we have that in Ontario. And perhaps that is the explanation for so many independent schools um, opening. Um, so I'll get that, get that balance, the regulatory balance right is really important. So Provider policymakers in each province can look across the country and look at the solutions. Every province has a different um, uh, set of policies around the, the funding, regulating, and operating of independent schools. It's we We have a lot of creativity here in Canada, and we should not ignore it, and we really should learn from one another. Other countries have have different approaches. And again, so looking at lessons from other jurisdictions is is, I think, going to be beneficial as we move forward. We don't have to use the 20th century solutions. And the vast majority of policy and regulation around independent schools were designed in, in the 20th century. That's a great segue, Deanie, into my next question. As someone who studies public policy a bit, I'm struck, as you say, by the degree of provincial variation on education policy. It stands in contrast to, say, healthcare or even social welfare policies where there's considerable provincial convergence. Can you speak in a high level about some of the variation across the provinces in terms of regulation and public support for independent schools? And maybe put differently, from your perspective, is there a gold standard model that other provinces should be emulating or pursuing? I think it's really important. Thanks for the question. I think it's really important to notice that every province funds more than one system of public schools. So that's also at its core, we've got a lot of patients in Canada for diversity. So we fund public, um, English public, French public, English Catholic, French Catholic in a lot of our provinces. So we've got, we've got, um, in fact, our constitution is founded on making that kind of a, arrangement for the, for the freedom to, for independent separate or for separate Roman Catholic separate schools to be fully government funded. So I think Canada does stand out across the world for its um, willingness to understand that diverse providers and to get that fit right. So that's our legacy. That's the heritage on which we built. At the provincial level, um, for example, 
a province like British Columbia, they do not fund Roman Catholic schools as part of the government system. They've chosen instead to just have the English and the French systems um, fully government funded and then move all forms of religious schooling and all forms of of pedagogical variations. Um, And I should just be clear, about half of independent schools have a religious definition. And and the other half have some sort of a pedagogical or academic unique focus. And you just, it it varies across province to province, but that just gives a bit of a sense. So back to British Columbia. British Columbia says, if you're going to be a religious school, that will be part of the independent school system. And then within that, British Columbia says, they've got four groups. And the first group is funded at 50%. The second group, uh, more elite schools, they're funded at 35% 35% per student. And then group three and four, they, they're the groups that they don't want, they want a lot of autonomy, a lot of regulatory autonomy, and they're not as interested in the funding. So um, it's British Columbia, I think, offers a good standard to take a look at in Canada. But the innovation that we see in a place like Saskatchewan, um, as, as I said, they've got different uh, new variations in independent schooling and the level of regulation is worth looking at. And then, of course, Alberta, because of its um, interest in charter schools, is a standout among the other provinces for the fact that uh, it uh, it permits charter schools, which are government, fully government funded, but they have independent operators within the public system. So, again, that's another nuance that I think we could be paying a little more attention to. I want to take up the issue of the historical and constitutional origins of the Canadian education model. I know you're an education expert, not a constitutional scholar, so I understand if you want to pass on this question. But do you know how much of any scope there is, Dini, to change Ontario's longstanding policy of preferencing Catholic schools over other denominational schools or other forms of independent education? The, the question obviously comes up from time to time. I think it's very important to note that about a third of Ontarians have been educated and continue to be educated through the separate Roman Catholic system. So it's fully entrenched in the ethos and in the education delivery in this province. And when various groups take a look at um, the possibility of Roman Catholics no longer being part of the, fun- the, the public school system, the costs are enormous to change that. It is so entrenched in the system. So there's some practical barriers, um, but also I think historical and legacy barriers to doing so. It's baked into our identity. It's baked in, as we said, to the founding um, identity of this country. Um, what I think probably holds more weight in a province like Ontario, and certainly we can learn from other provinces, is that it's okay to have a Roman Catholic system as part of our, our government schools. But what isn't okay is the fact that other religions don't have access to some funding for the forms of education. And as our province and, and our population becomes increasingly diverse, there are more religions, of course, represented than just the founding um, you know, faith in, in the 1860s, um, which were predominantly, of course, Protestant and Roman Catholic. So recognizing our times, which other provinces have done, and, and offer funding for schools of other faiths, Jewish, a variety of types of Christian schools, a variety of um, 
Muslim schools, Jewish schools, even Sikh schools, and etc. So I think we we need to be thinking this is the 21st century, this is not the 19th century. And that could be an excellent policy development is to say, yeah, parents do want to educate along their religious convictions. Um, let's look at how that could be made possible. And we have examples, as I said, right at home here in Canada for how to do that for a province like Ontario. I think it's really important to, to recognize that when the European Union just recently updated, it's, it's, it, it produced a document on the modernization of education in, in the EU uh, four years ago. And the statement is in there that parents should have the right to have their children educated according to their pedagogical, religious, and philosophical convictions. That's what a modern system of education does, is it continues to recognize those longstanding declarations and covenants that came into place in the 20th century, recognizing uh, the importance of the diversity, but then making that kind of statement. And the European, uh, your vast majority of European countries don't just state that. That, they actually put dollars behind it so that that conviction is possible for parents to choose. In the context of two Conservative Party leadership races ago, then-candidate Andrew Scheer put forward a proposal to enable families who send their kids to independent schools or those who homeschooled to deduct a portion of the associated costs from their federal tax bill. You liked the idea in principle, but had some concerns in practice. Do you want to talk a bit about those concerns? And more importantly, what do you think the right policy approach ought to be? I think my concern at the time was the fact that it was a federal initiative. And I realize Australia did this some decades ago. The, the federal government got involved in the statewide funding of, of their independent schools. So that was that was an anomaly for them, but they still went ahead and did that. I think we need to be very careful about federal involvement in something that is under provincial jurisdiction. There there doesn't seem to be a reason for us to remove provincial jurisdiction for education. In fact, Sean, I'd like to argue for more local um, uh, input and, and in involvement in the design and delivery of education, not something further removed. The other part, though, of the policy proposal at that time was the fact that it was a tax credit. It wasn't direct funding to an institution, to a school. It was funding directly to parents. And this is where I think policy innovators could have some real, um, just some really fruitful conversations. What is a forward-looking approach to funding educational pluralism in Canada? So if we sat down and said we wanted to be innovative, we wanted to be a leader among the world in, in respecting diversity and equity in education. Would we continue to fund schools? That was the solution we came up with in five provinces in the 20th century. Would we continue to do that? Or would we start to offer some more funding to parents and then let parents take that um, credit and then they pay a higher level of tuition? Um, so the out-of-pocket goes uh, the schools on on the face of it are funded by parents um, and their direct choice. I think that's that would be a really fruitful question and conversation to have. One of my cautions would be Canada is a global leader in funding, certainly the five provinces, in funding independent schools and setting up a system where independent schools are funded, the way that those schools work together with their associations. British Columbia is just an excellent example of those associations that represent the various independent schools, work together with government. It's healthy, it's dynamic. 
Um, there's great dialogue and space there. So a respect that the independent schools are part of the education system in that province seems to get reinforced when you regulate the schools and you fund through the schools. So I'm not ready to walk away from that. I think Canada is on to something. And I think we're on to something that we could that we could share with the rest of the world. Funding towards parents, though, for certain aspects of a child's education, if your child has special needs, for example, maybe there could be some kind of a credit that could go to parents because maybe they can't find the school in their jurisdiction or the, the public school in their jurisdiction just isn't able to, to meet the needs as, as maybe a different school. So or an independent school might. So I just, I, I think this is this is the time to have a healthy, vibrant, creative conversation about that. I'd be curious to make the arguments in both directions. Let me ask a final question about homeschooling, which, as you said earlier, is still less than 1% of the student population, but something more and more families are thinking about. I'm intrigued, for instance, about the idea of homeschooling or some model of homeschooling with friends or neighbors. You have direct experience with homeschooling. Do you want to reflect a bit on that experience? What was it like? How much work was it? And do you have any advice? I think the motivation behind why to homeschool is really important. I was starting to to develop, a, even though I was a public high school math teacher, I was starting to develop a real hunger to answer the questions why do we educate the way we do? I was successful. I love schools, obviously. I was, that's how you end up being a teacher in a public school. Um, but then when I had my own kids, I started asking those deeper questions. Why, why do we educate? What is a full education? What does it look like when we're trying to prepare an, a child in, in their entirety for a, a flourishing life? What is it to have happy children and, and a full life through their childhood, not just as, you know, schooling or education being preparation for some other period. I was, and I had never asked in all of my university years or in all of my study to become a teacher myself, I had never asked those deeper questions. So as I became really intrigued with why we educate and are we sure we're doing it right in this country, I came across many different educational philosophies and philosophers. And I just kind of hungrily started reading through. And then obviously the next question is, well, okay, if these ideas are true, what does it look like in the classroom? And then I started looking for schools and I couldn't find schools that were applying those ideas in the, in the way that they could be applied. Now I was in rural Ontario, let's be fair. Like when you're in a small population center, you can't expect a wide diversity of schools to be around. But I just, I was in intrigued about what was increasingly becoming possible. And this is just as the internet was coming out. So we could learn so much more about what was going on in other jurisdictions and had access to resource and conversation in ways we never had before. So that's how I ended up, you know, we, our, our children did go to schools for some time, but I ended up um, saying, let's give this a try ourselves. And, and my husband and I suddenly found ourselves wearing this hat called homeschooling parents that was not a title we were seeking, but it was a, an approach to education and a lifestyle that we increasingly found so rich and um, so animating in just so many ways. Is it hard? Is it all consuming? Yes, absolutely. Because not only are you putting up your hand to take responsibility 
for the entire education of your child. You can no longer say that it's the school's job. It's your job. Um, it's a, it's 24-7 and it's lifestyle and it's a, it's a massive commitment and obviously has implications for the finances in the home. Um, homeschooling is increasing, as you and I know. Obviously, during during the pandemic, parents had a taste of what it's like to have your children home full time. I would not call that experience homeschooling by the definitions that we traditionally used because the students were still the responsibility. The education was the responsibility of the school in which they were enrolled. So parents had to come alongside during COVID in many cases, but it was only those who, I let's say, de-enrolled from school and actually said, okay, no, now I am the primary educator. Um, that's what I would say the definition of what it is to be a homeschooler. So we we hear anecdotally, again, as I said, we don't have enrollment numbers yet uh, from the last few years, certainly not throughout the province of Ontario. But anecdotally, we know that the numbers of, of families that are sticking with carrying the, the main responsibility for their kids' education is increasing. What we also have seen is these collaborations with families. We used to call them co-ops. We'd get together on a Tuesday. We'd bring in a teacher, someone with expertise in, in our case, it was someone who was a, a literary expert and she would read and teach our kids to write. And some of the things she taught my eight-year-old, I still use in my own writing. I mean, she we just had fantastic times together with families who built a community around that. But that was Tuesday. And then Wednesday, we had another community where we we all got together and we hired some, you know, choral conductors and we had orchestras for kids. So we had a couple hundred kids come out every Wednesday or whatever day it was. And we all worked together. That was like from 3 to 7 p.m. So we still could do what we thought we needed to do at home in the morning with our with our core subjects. But that was Wednesday. And then Thursday afternoons, we hired swimming instructors and we took over the local community pool and had a couple dozen kids and some families. And it was just really creative. It was organic. It, it recognized what was available to us in our community. Uh, it was a real way of honoring expertise of, of some of other homeschooling parents. Uh, there was a there was a real innovation and a beautiful spirit of, of learning and, and kind of raising our kids together. Now, we didn't do it for all the years that we were a parent, but for those few years when I was really hungry to give my kids an education that was filled with books and opportunity to be outside for a lot of the time, opportunity to really pursue their music studies with their good hours, like no practicing piano at 7.30 p.m. after a long day. I mean, the best hours of the day could go to the instruments. And it was it was really a, a very satisfying experience and period. Well, that's a, just a, a beautiful portrait and a very enlightening one, Dini, as has been this conversation. Dini Van Pelt, who, as I mentioned, amongst other things, is the president of Advanced Christian Schools Association. Thank you for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. 
The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.